Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking containers, the container market, and its relationship to commodities. The box revolutionized global trade, and for the last decade, prices and rates were low, and the commodities themselves are increasingly containerized. Now, in the wake of the global pandemic, rates are up almost a thousand percent. The newspapers are filled with global supply chain shocks. What's the cause behind these rate hikes, bottlenecks, and the global supply chain crisis? What does that mean for commodities? What's its role in inflation? And what does the future hold for the container market? Our guest to help us understand this is Chief Analyst at Zanetta, the global freight market intelligence and benchmarking platform, Peter Sand. Peter has over 15 years experience in the shipping market across dry bulk, tankers, and now the container market. As always, if you enjoy the episode, please do leave a positive review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Peter, thanks for joining. You're most welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me today. I'm really thrilled. I'm excited to have this discussion. So we're talking about containers, the container industry, and obviously that's been in the news at the moment as it relates to global supply chain shocks, primarily as a result of COVID, but now Ukraine, shipping rates have shot up. But we're also weaving in what that means for the commodities world because a significant amount of commodities, metals, softs, plastics, for example, are containerized, and that's been an increasing trend over the last year in a period of low freight rates. Before we dig into the market structure, we talk about what, you know the impact on commodities. Can you just give us a, an overview, so we're all on the same page, about what containerized shipping is, background to that, and how it differs to dry bulk and tankers? Naturally, Paul, and it would be my pleasure if I may just bring us all back one year. And I could say that it was the world's largest completely invisible industry, serving us all, connecting buyers in one end of the world with sellers in the other end without the regular consumer like you and I knowing about it at all because it was just delivered at our doorstep on the next day or a week after, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, no disruptions at all. But what we see in the global markets right now and what container shipping is all about is challenging right now connecting the dots on a global scale where one end of the world is battling COVID, another end of the world is, is facing uh, the uh, warlike situations, and another part of the world is having truck drivers also protesting against the uh, COVID regulation left, right, and center. So in that regard, it's global network that affects everything. So what happens in one end of the world affects another end of the world. It's like this. Is it the butterfly syndrome or something like that? But nevertheless, I mean, Ever Given did something to container shipping that even, uh, say, Malcolm McLean, the inventor of the container box, could not do, bring it to the attention of everybody. I, I recall at uh, some point in time when Ever Given was stuck in the Suez Canal, that uh, memes were, were circulating the globe. Uh, that was uh, everything from... Uh, from just giving it a little bit of, a, say, bicycle grease uh, to, uh, to, to, to make it slip through the canal and stuff like that. But it definitely caught the attention of, uh, of, of everyone. And I guess, yeah, that's, that's just container shipping in a nutshell, bringing those boxes around the world. 
And it is an extraordinary invention, this idea. You know, it's so simple, and many of the great inventions are, which has powered the last 70 years of commerce, right? This idea that you could have one standard box, as it's known, and that can go on a ship, it can go on a truck, it can go on rail, and transport safely products, commodities around the world. Can you, so can you just very quickly sort of give us why, why, did, why has container shipping the box dominated the freight world for so long because it made transportation of anything that doesn't come in huge amounts like coal or oil easy to transport so having this standard box where the manufacturing or the supplier one good at one end could just put that into the box put it on board a truck put it to the port, put it down to the ship, that standardization of the global box made trading so easy for anyone. So if you look at the growth in container shipping from a demand perspective, it was double digit for decades. We had to go all the way up to the global financial crisis in the end of the noughties before we basically could see a little bit of globalization 2.0 or 2.1. But that was basically, you can say, the manifest of globalization, bringing the whole world together. I mean, people started traveling on, on say, uh, commercial airplanes, but that box just made it so much easier, cutting a lot of workers from, uh, from the docks in the load areas as well as the discharge areas i mean you were you you had so many dock workers uh spending a lot of time just uh, say discharging or loading a ship it made it so much more efficient that you could do so distant from uh, from the ports and terminals and once they got basically wrapped and locked up you could just so much more easier send them away. So, so it basically facilitated the globalization that the world has 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 enjoyed for for many many decades, bringing prosperity around the globe, and that still continues uh, today, and much in a different fashion than if we go back to the more say traditional uh, shipping sectors of of dry bulk and and tankers, where you need vast amounts of exactly the same thing to be transported uh, around the globe that's that's under pressure in a, in a different uh, manner going forward because much of what is transported from uh, from in, in the form of, of say oil tankers or gas or dry bulk is of course under pressure from uh, from that whole say uh, greenhouse gas agenda or the climate issues that we're facing whereas containerization of, of of goods and commodities is you can say still an ongoing story that's also of course under pressure from uh, decarbonization of not only what you and i do in our everyday lives but also transportation on a wider scale so there's so many aspects that that chip into it uh, to, to this uh, this uh, great industry yeah, yeah, we have these short-term shocks, but these long-term structural challenges and opportunities that are going on. So you've got dry bulk, you've got tankers, or the other sort of two pillars to the or legs to this particular shipping stool. We're not focusing on those today, but they interplay because there's always a at the margin a switch between how commodities and products should be shipped. How does commodities fit into this story? How What has happened over the last 20 years or longer that meant that more and more commodities that traditionally would be, in particular, I guess, dry bulk, 
are switching to containers. Can you help us understand that dynamic, which commodities are involved and the drivers behind that? Yeah, for sure. One of the uh, the commodities that are increasingly being transported in the containers is that of agricultural bulks, especially out of uh, out of North America. Uh, also, again, due to that massive power of innovation amongst the uh, container companies, the liners of the world, that they have been super effective in finding new commodities to put inside that box. Because at any given day, it makes much more sense to fill up a bulk carrier capable of transporting, for instance, 60,000 tons of wheat from uh, from Louisiana to uh, to uh, to Egypt or to uh, to the Far East. But just the ease of, say, doing business, the uh, the availability of boxes to to get those into the the, the specific field for uh, for the harvest that just basically to to empty its tank right down into the container and then reposition it back to to the front hall that is say what i call sometimes the cannibalization of shipping itself because you move one commodity that's already seaborne from one sector to the next so uh, obviously as we are also focusing a bit uh, today on on the disruptions that we have seen i guess it's not say uh, known to everyone but uh, but as uh, at least the uh, the big american uh, shipping community and shippers community of agri Bulks. Uh, they have been crying foul about uh, some of the things and and the whereabouts and the, and the doings of uh, of liner companies in uh, in the past years because they have they have felt that that they were not serviced to the extent that uh, that they would otherwise be in a normal market because the carriers were eager to get the MTs back as soon as possible to 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 the far east uh, say main halls where the big money were made so why waste time with a, an empty box in a cornfield that was uh, i guess sound economic reasoning but naturally some of them were just say not really happy about this uh, this uh, this decision making and and they were they were left to uh, to 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 go back basically to dry box so you can always see that there is a say a swing back and forth between uh, commodities uh, tankers we actually also have uh, in the container shipping industry container tanks also but uh, but but that in rough terms most of that goes on on rail goes in north america goes via europe but tankers in large scale like uh, like crude oil that's not for to be containerized at, at any point in time uh, soon uh, but containerized goods i guess one of the most successful stories that i will just mention here uh, is that of the reefer container a refrigerated container where you can bring in perishable goods that goes from uh, from frozen lamb in new zealand to picked oranges in uh, anywhere in the world to bananas in south america for instance bringing those say temperature sensitive goods also from where they are produced to where they are consumed. That is a massive success story also of containerization of goods that were basically not being transported any other way before. They're going into a container. Okay, so we have seen then, as you allude to, a desire to utilize the, the containers for agricultural products, softs, etc. You've also seen metals on it. And I guess that was, um, you know, it, it certainly favors higher value commodities, it favors those commodities that you know are more easily be storable in the container and you had for a long period and i want to get into the container market structure now you had a long period of low prices right which i guess also facilitated 
that being a trend. Can you talk to us about the container market? It's incredibly consolidated. I think it'll surprise people how consolidated it is, although it makes sense given it's a, a world of connecting as opposed to discrete holes by one company. Can you set up the market structure for the containers and then we can that will tee us up to be able to look at how it's being impacted by these the current shocks? Yeah, very much so. Uh, I think you should, if you have a picture in front of you, you have ocean shipping, ocean container shipping in the very middle. And of course, you have a terminal or port at either end. And then you basically go a little bit back into the hinterland in the manufacturing centers of, for instance, uh, the, the Far East, but they are basically everywhere. I mean, global container shipping is everywhere. But you need a place for, for, for the goods to be manufactured, either in a semi-finished fashion or in a in a fashion way. If they're semi-finished, naturally they are, say, transported in a container consecutively from, from one manufacturing place to the next before it ends up in the consuming market. Uh, but uh, but in, in essence, you uh, fill up a container at a manufacturing place, bring it to the port in a truck or on rail, use a crane to put it on top of the ship. It is stowed very concisely to make sure that the stability of the ship is right. Uh, dangerous cargo is put in one place, refrigerated cargo in another place. And depending on the, the schedule of uh, the ship, the boxes are put just in the right place because container shipping market structure is also very much about, you can say, the bus lanes of the world. Whereas dry bulk and tankers are more tram shipping like a taxi that goes, a taxi that goes everywhere. Container shipping is all about, say, fixed scheduled, where the uh, the shippers know if they are shipping something out of Busan, Korea, for instance, they can get that into uh, to Middle East two weeks later. And if they have more boxes that transport perhaps on the same lane, that will then be transshipped, for instance, in, in, in Dubai, going to, uh, to Piraeus in, in Greece, uh, into the European market. And where is then, once again, picked up and moved to a, to a warehouse where the box is emptied. And then that box, of course, need either to be filled up with cargo going back or repositioned as an empty. And that's basically a little bit also about that structure and, and why I mentioned before that some American shippers were were feel felt that they were being left out here because those boxes, of course, need to be in a, in a constant flow. So you need to have also the, the empties going back if the uh, producers in Europe, for instance, or North America, there aren't that many goods that move back to the Far East. So, so we normally have an overweight of fresh air going back from North America or from Europe into the Far East. So that's a little bit of how the structure works. It's the line of companies that owns the ships. We have also, say, pure investors that uh, that are, say, real ship owners, but with no, say, operating arms like the line of companies. And then, of course, Paul, you mentioned also that, uh, that this industry may be one of the most consolidated amongst the uh, uh, shipping sectors and, and by some measure. I would say, because if you go into a dry bulk, for instance, you have less than 10 owners that own more than 100 ships. But in the container shipping market, we have uh, the top 10 liners controlling, not owning, but controlling and, and, and chartering in capacity equal to around 80% of the market. So there is 
a lot of smaller owners and operators out there as well. But there's also these main liners, and, and these main liners basically also operate within what's known as, as alliances. Uh, so we have three main alliances. And the way that you should think about these main alliances is basically if you are a private person, you would like to fly around the world, for instance. Then you go down to your travel agent, and that travel agent can basically book you on board various different, let's say, carriers around the world, but within the same alliance, for instance, making it easy for you as, and this in this case, a private person wanting to fly around the world, as it is for one shipper, for instance, that have multiple, say, manufacturing places and multiple markets where his or her goods are intended for. They can basically get in touch with uh, with any of those uh, alliances, and then they can bring your box anywhere in the world. So it's a little bit of, say, making it much smarter for, for the shippers on a global scale. But obviously, again, there's always someone crying foul. And I say it's also a fair case to mention that the uh, consolidation of, uh, of the liners are constantly questioned. It's constantly put to the test also because, of course, you cannot abuse that power. But if you go back also into, uh, well, pre-pandemic, and the previous 10 years prior to 2020. I think if you look at freight rates during those times, you could also say that no one was capable of making, say, use of any market power to put up prices. It was literally impossible. It is a super competitive market, but where we are now with super high freight rates, that's just a completely different story to me. Yeah. It's not about consolidation. It's about massive disruption. Yeah. So, and I want to come on to the last 10 years and just why that was. But this is going to sound a very naive question. So how do contracts work? How contractually do shippers ship? Can you sort of set that up for us? Yeah, absolutely. In the simple fashion, we basically have two markets where you, as a shipper, can get your cargo moving. At Sanetta, we follow those two markets very closely. It is the spot market, of course, where you, if you're a shipper, calling your agent saying that, okay, or your freight forwarder for that matter, your liner uh, contact saying that, okay, I have uh, 100 boxes that I would like to ship out of, say, Tokyo tomorrow for Los Angeles, for instance. Then you are getting a quote, which is the spot market. If you are a much bigger shipper, if you have more complex supply chains going for you, and you know that at any given week around the year, you have like a thousand boxes going out of Singapore, you have a thousand boxes leaving Mumbai in India, etc., then you can go into the market, which is for long-term contracts where you as a shipper get a closer relationship with your either your freight forwarder or your carrier directly if you're that big that's normally for for the biggest shippers of the world to be in direct touch with the liner companies if you're a smaller shipper you you may make use of a freight forwarder as the uh, say the facilitator of your trade in between so we have the spot market where you can always go get a quote move that box as soon as possible or you have the contract market where you promise upfront that you will ship larger volume at 
previously agreed uh, periods of time. And obviously, there's a discount to make from, say, the long-term contracts. So if you make commitments also upfront, the liners can then optimize the logistics and you get, say, a lower price. So every time you you check out, for instance, on the uh, Senator platform, you will, of course, see that there is a connection between the two. There's much more mm. volatility, much more, say, short-term disruption on the spot. But if the spot market is is at a high level for a long time, obviously also you will see that uh, spill over into the long-term contract that will then be lifted and vice versa, of course. So it's very much in the matter of, okay, what kind of, say, customer are you? Are you moving only in the short-term market or in the long-term market? And obviously you sign contracts on the back of that. Contracts that are, in essence, legally binding, but you have not really seen anyone being interested in going into a, a courtroom uh, to, to settle a dispute because that's basically not how the business works if there is, say, breach of contracts. Yeah, I'd like to dig into that, but I don't think we have enough time. Is there a secondary market? Are there derivatives? You know, Are we seeing freight forward agreements and so forth? Does that come into the container market yet so that these, especially now, these large shippers can get some, some hedging and some risk management protection against rates? There is a growing market for derivatives uh, also in container shipping. We have seen it for, for, for a long time, mostly in, uh, within the tanker space, uh, but also within the dry bolt space. It seems as if the, uh, the interest is more from outside money makers or, say, financial interests more than, uh, than the, the business itself. But only recently, and uh, I guess that was uh, towards the end of the last year, Basically, uh, Seneta also uh, published a specific set of indices that uh, you could use for trading in a derivative. It's the XSI, which is basically a, uh, a product that you can, where you can build your derivatives on top of. So it's something that, uh, that, that we also see there is a future for this because there is also a need for hedging, especially in times uh, like the ones that we are facing right now, because going back a couple of years, the money you paid for global transportation, it was debt cheap. And it basically facilitated global trade. Uh, so so I guess the higher the market, the higher the interest is also for dealing in, in derivatives. Uh, but time will tell only how much this will, say, pick up in terms of interest from, from, from financial institutions, from shippers, or even from carriers. I guess it makes sense as well, because on the tanker and the bulk side, the predominant shippers are traders themselves. So well aware of the need, you know, risk management itself, right? Whereas that's probably not as true as of the large auto manufacturers, whatever it might be, that are using containers. You're absolutely right. And I guess uh, at some point in time, much of, uh, say, the, the obstacles and hurdles that you also see in derivatives trading is that that from an accounting perspective, sometimes you also need a perfect hedge on this, and especially in dry bulk, that can be pretty tricky to set up a perfect hedge. But if you have a perfect hedge in container shipping, I mean, containers, they move, as said before, on schedules. So so there is, there is perfect hedges to be found everywhere in container shipping. So I guess at some point in time, it will snowball and it will pick up, but, uh, but time will tell when that will be. Yeah, a new market for our commodities listeners. So, okay, so the last 10 years, can you just give us some sense of the magnitude of 
the difference between prices, you know, two, three years ago, prior to COVID and today. And why did we have that period? And that period of low prices, I should say, was also mirrored in tankers and dry bulk. Was this just the cycle at play and there'd been so much investment in new capacity? What was going on and, and, and what were the prices that we're talking about? Absolutely. Uh, the prices we were talking about, uh, if we just do a, a classic uh, Trans-Pacific, which is uh, Far East Asia into uh, to North America, uh, a box would uh, would be transported uh, across the Pacific for for around a thousand to uh, to a thousand five hundred uh, US dollars per box. Right now, you uh, you pay twelve thousand uh, dollars for the same box from from Far East into US East Coast, and there is extra surcharges, priority shipment fees that you can add on top of that, all the way up to uh, well nine thousand dollars just for that fee if you go into a heavily disrupted and congested port. And I guess that's that's the main thing that that you see in terms of the difference here, because the, uh, the the low rates of the past decade came around due to the fact that we we came in container shipping from an environment where any say mishaps in terms of over ordering were quickly erased due to a double digit demand growth. So if uh, if the liners, uh, ship owners over-invested in the market, adding too much capacity into uh, to, to, to the market at some point in time. That, say, you can say market mistake was, was easily uh, corrected due to massive demand growth. But past 10 years, we have seen not double-digit growth anymore, but more growth uh, along the line of global GDP. So the multiplier has basically been around 1, 1.2 perhaps. And that has, of course, meant that the overcapacity that the industry brought into uh, to the last decade was, say, way too much for demand, way too much for demand. And that fundamentally brings down freight rates. Obviously, there are disruptions from now and then. There are consumers uh, steadily supporting uh, containerized demand. Carriers, liner companies, freight forwarders are constantly seeking, say, containerization of new commodities that perhaps were not a part of the market anymore. So they do generate also new demand, but it was still way too much for for for, for the fleet. How did the carriers then turn around a profit? Well, they basically slowed down the fleet massively. So what you see in terms of uh, of, of the efficiency of the the ships today as compared to two decades ago? Well, you uh, you apply basically 10 ships into a trade that that used to make use of only seven ships. So uh, so you can basically see from, from that perspective, the assets are underutilized. But uh, but then again, I mean, in the fast forward to the market where we are today, where, where ships are, are waiting around the key ports, North America and, and Asia, you basically will not solve the problem with adding more ships, they would basically just add to the lines. You need to uh, say solve all the uh, all the obstacles in in the hinterland in order for for freight rates once again to come down, for ships to get deployed in the trades where they used to trade. Because the past two years have basically biased the market to such an extent that a lot of say carriers have, have just added capacity into, especially the Trans-Pacific because of the stimulus provided to American consumers that brought a massive demand on that trade. So that have biased the whole thing. And looking forward, 
what needs to change for for freight rates to uh, to, to come down again from this uh, this massive jump in in freight rates well patience for once and then say leaving COVID behind, making sure that uh, consumers once again get into their normal pattern, are still far away in many ways. So I don't feel I quite understand. Okay, so you've, you've had this thousand percent increase in shipping rates. Let's assume there was no COVID. Would we have seen a rise in prices anyway because you had had that sort of slowdown in new ships entering the fleet? Or is this all ultimately covid related because i guess i don't understand i mean i understand certainly that you've got bottlenecks at ports and you've got some lanes now now being much more utilized as a result of stimulus as you mentioned you know if ships aren't able to get into port why is that increasing freight rates because ultimately you know it doesn't sound to me like it's it's under capacity it's just these bottlenecks that are causing issues and you know it's not like if you charter at a higher rate that that ship has any more chance of getting into port so what why fundamentally why are we seeing such an extraordinary increase in prices yeah you're hitting it right on the head uh, paul the, the uh, it is the uh, all the bottlenecks that you see left right and center that contributes to the much higher freight rates because they in essence take a massive amount of capacity out of the market. So in a, in a world with no congestion, freight rates would be super low. They would perhaps even be below where they were in the past decade due to, say, slow-growing demand, enough capacity around. But right now we have a ship that would normally do, uh, say, 10 round trips from Far East to North America is capable of doing five round trips now. So that, in essence, should give you an idea of basically halving the uh, the amount of transportation capacity in the market. And at the same point in time, but of course, it, it's a little bit of chicken and egg here, that has come around due to massive demand from, in particular, the North American consumers, as they were giving a lot of money to spend. And they all went uh, online, more or less. Yeah, basically spent it all on Amazon. Exactly. I mean, and funny you mentioned Amazon because they are basically the, the, the one disruptor in this market as, as they are also trying to control their own supply chains, still making use of the networks that we know about today. But Amazon is also, say, building quite a an air freighter fleet uh, as we speak. Uh, they are also trying to, to set up the warehouses, uh, prime warehouses. You may see that when uh, when you either fly over or, or you pass by on a, on a highway. So someone being very active in e-commerce, certainly also trying to uh, to make things work in a different way going forward. But but in essence, it is all of these bottlenecks at sea, but also in terms of the hinterland, because when you have ships that would normally just sail to a port, get alongside, take boxes off, take new boxes on, leave again. If you have too many boxes within the port perimeter, that port is working slowly. And that basically means that you're piling up ships. Uh, you may or may not know that, uh, that it, well, only a couple of months ago, we had more than 110 ships just waiting to get alongside in uh, in, in the Los Angeles ports of, of Long Beach and Los Angeles. A lot of those ships were just waiting at the anchorage just outside. So that was massively inefficient. And when you have a huge demand from uh, from global shippers, because they 
feel the demand from retailers and from customers, that's when you get to this uh, this one thousand percent higher freight rate. Yeah, but it takes an awful long time to not only say improve on the structures that we see right now. We see initiatives in in North America, for instance, with massive billion dollar investments plans to improve the logistics. But at the end of the day, I doubt it matters that much. It's too little, it's too late, and it may be investments in the wrong places. So what is needed may be something else. Yeah, because I, I, in preparation for this discussion, you know, one uh, senior person at a unnamed large global shipper described the challenges of these bottlenecks is the first mile and the last mile. And someone described certainly the last mile is like a snake eating a deer, right? Just the sheer, these supply chains at the, with truckers and so forth are really under pressure. And as you mentioned, one part of that chain causes ramifications all the way back up to that first mile. So what, in your estimation, I completely now understand, you know, congestion is causing for these, these freight rates. There's other things as well I want to bring in. I want to talk about bunker fuel shortly. But what is going on with these bottlenecks? Have you guys divined what are the key factors that are creating them? Yeah, well, if I may touch on how we may actually improve on those bottlenecks going forward, there's a lot of, uh, say, good work being done on what we call, say, virtual arrivals, which is basically uh, also a nice way of cutting carbon going forward because it avoids ships from rushing to wait and then just sit at the anchorage. If they can get their, say, their ticket in line uh, as soon as they leave the, the, the Far East uh, uh, port, they could just slow steam to uh, to, to, to meet the uh, point of, of destination right when uh, when there's a vacant berth for them. Uh, so so that's one way of, of easing a bit of, uh, of the pain. Then, of course, if you go into the terminals, there's a lot of talk about automation, whether that brings around, say, uh, higher productivity or not. Uh, and I would say it basically depends on where you look at it in the world. Uh, because obviously, when you look at the uh, efficiencies in the main terminals and ports in Asia, they are highly efficient. They move boxes around the clock and they make uh, those boxes move rapidly. So, so obviously, when you when you focus on on the congestion that has been a nightmare on the U.S. West Coast, is right now growing on the U.S. East Coast, basically because shippers would like to uh, avoid the congestion, but also uh, they fear that uh, that the upcoming negotiations on the U.S. West Coast uh, with uh, with the with the dock workers and and the liners and the ports will completely melt down the situation on the U.S. West Coast, and 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 that basically brings me to the fact that the American ports, they are not very efficient. The European ports are more efficient, but still all of them are second to to the Asian ports. They were basically also built for massive exports and rapid growth, whereas many of the, you can say, the more legacy ports in in, in Europe, they struggle to expand on, uh, on not only ships getting bigger, that surely also uh, strains the hinterland connectivity because it's more easy for one port to cater for uh, four or 5,000 TEUs, for instance, than one 20,000 TEU bringing a lot of boxes to the docks in one go 
more uh, as compared to a more smooth uh, transition of those boxes. So all of that is some of the things that the industry is working on in making it smarter. And then, of course, we get back to, well, you mentioned contracts just a while ago. The more the shippers can let the carriers know about the goods that are moved, the more predictability they can bring into the liner's uh, schedule, the more resilience we will also see, hopefully, return to the industry going forward. Because at the end of the day, everyone along the supply chain needs higher resiliency of the global supply chains. Nobody likes what's going on right now. I mean, carriers are making tons of money, but regardless of that, they would rather deliver a much better product to the global shippers that basically they also deserve, and they will also get that. But it requires perhaps a different structure. But depending on how that structure looks like, those of you who who, who know about uh, liner shipping to a degree will also know that, uh, that some of the main carriers are also now seeking to make use of those windfall profits in order to widen their share of the, of the profit cake here, bringing in, say, wider logistics offerings, setting up new warehouses, taking over freight forwarders, making sure that they do a bigger share of the logistics going forward than not than only the the ocean part of the shipping. And I guess that could also be a part of the solution going forward because there's so many, say, different hands, different companies where the goods needs to be shifted from to from and to uh, from uh, from from its production to it to its end consumption so uh, you can say the the more smooth that transition can be obviously that will also form part of the container market structure in the future in order to make things flow more easily okay so i think that set us up really nicely on kind of what's going on and some of the solutions looping back in commodities Firstly, can you just give us a quick view on bunker fuel? Because you've got this vicious cycle right <laughs> that's going on in that all the fuels for these ships are increasing as well. And that's, you know, that's the major part of their cost, right? Can you just help us understand what's going on in, in the their fuel side of things? Yeah, very much so. It is the biggest single cost item for, for, for a ship, that of, of bunker fuels. Uh, and we only saw... Two weeks ago, the cost of, uh, say, one metric ton of very low sulfur fuel oil exceed $1,000. It has never been that high before. And that, of course, originates from the disruption relating to it, to, you, the, to the Ukraine-Russia uh, crisis and the fact that also the bunker industry is now working to untangle itself from, uh, from a lot of uh, Russian fuel that goes into uh, to the bunker industry and in the end to the wider shipping industry. But obviously what this means to global shippers is that uh, the uh, one part of, uh, of the freight rates, which is normally a more significant part in a much lower market, the bunker adjustment factors, the price that shippers pay for higher uh, fuel costs, is also going up right now. It is uh, it is to 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 our extent. You can see what what normally only a few months ago would give you an extra five hundred dollars per container moved on the far east to U.S. East Coast, for instance. The data data uh, would uh, would show you that the bunker adjustment factor is now one thousand two hundred dollars. So it's more than a doubling on that. And you can imagine, of course, in a market right now that 
is around 12,000 on that trade. It may be less visible to you as a shipper, but in a market that is, say, $1,500 instead, mm. then it makes a huge difference, of course, the current price of oil, but so much more also the future price of oil, as, as uh, I've mentioned a couple of times. I know we are not, say, uh, doing a climate uh, podcast here, but, uh, but the price of decarbonizing also uh, the global uh, transportation network obviously comes at a price, and it's the price of the fuel that is uh, that is of the essence here but it surely have proved also to uh, to to a lot of people that uh, that even at very very high bunker fuel costs right now it is possible still to make it uh, make it flow in the way it, uh, it will but uh, let's just expect that uh, that the oil prices will remain the volatile element of freight rates also going forward as one disruption just uh, go away and, and two new disruptions uh, tend to, to impact the market. And I, I fear that at least we will have still a lot of disruption to the oil market in the, the coming, not only months, quarters and, and, and years, but, uh, but perhaps this decade will really be a disruptive one in terms of, uh, of the bunker prices and, and how that is also in the end, of course, passed on to, to, uh, to the shippers and in the end to you and I pushing up inflation before we sort of just talk about because you know as you mentioned a lot of the solutions to this are no quick fixes it was about improving the efficiency of the u.s and europe's ports and then other ports around the world and then obviously that the issues around trucking and so forth that we're, we're not really getting into here is this global supply chain shipping crisis we're in right now is that the ultimate heart root cause of the inflation that we're seeing or just a part of it it's a tiny part of it but i think the underlying idea that shipping boosts inflation it's easy and it's uh, it's nice and handy to understand that uh, that the cost of shipping when you look at one box that now costs you ten thousand dollars to ship and not one thousand dollars to ship that's easy to, to translate into higher inflation, but but of course you need in the end to to do this on a on a unit basis. So uh, if you are looking at uh, the success of containerized shipping over the years and, and decades, it's the fact that the cost of moving, say, one container can carry a thousand shoe boxes. So so even though the uh, the container now costs ten times as much to move. The price on the sneakers that you see on the shelf that could be, say, 100, uh, 100 uh, British pounds or something like that, or 100 US dollars, cost of the transportation is still next to nothing. So, so, uh, so uh, the, the root cause of inflation, I would say, comes from the massive stimulus provided by global governments to mostly the consumers. And it was done so and to such an extent that when you fill up the bathtub with, say, too much water, in the end, it flows over. So we did see not only, say, uh, certain inflation on, uh, on transport, but also inflations on, uh, say, secondhand cars, on stock prices, on anything that you can buy. Because when the water basically leaves the bathtub, it finds other ways. So, so, so inflation comes in many forms, 
but I would argue that, uh, that the cost of transportation, of course, will become a more significant part and has become a more significant part of, of you can say, the, the inflation basket. And the longer we see high shipping costs, obviously, the more likely it is also that it will prove to be sticky in those prices, as opposed mm. to just a brief, uh, say, spike in rates and then it, a rapid fall afterwards. That would not change the prices anywhere. But right now we have had an extended long period of very high prices. A structural shift up. Absolutely, absolutely. So the, the profit share is, is just changing. Uh, but one thing is that, uh, that we are not necessarily seeing prices coming down once we see, uh, say, that of transport uh, coming down in, uh, in a year or two. Hmm. Okay, so that was a very well put and, and fascinating <laughs> when you describe it you know, in the per unit sense. It's amazing, though, how much the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and you know, all the, the broadsheets are zeroed in on this as an easy target for uh, tackling. And as you mentioned, as the, uh, the shippers themselves will probably rather not be making such astronomical prices if it comes at the cost of a, a congressional hearing. That aside, so what has this meant for commodities? Is, are they now priced out and we're seeing them go back to dry bulk? Has that trend started to reverse or has the rise in commodity prices meant that now the return leg shippers are more keen to get that, uh, that, uh, those grains from the U.S. on the backhaul? <laughs> I think, uh, I think uh, especially the shippers are focused on getting those grains back on the backhaul uh, quite soon because to me, what we see in North America right now may be the biggest regulatory risk for, for the carriers in recent years. They have not been charged for wrongdoings in terms of, uh, say, abusing their, their power inside the, the alliances, uh, but they are being scrutinized to a large extent right now in, 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 uh, in North America by strong, strong groups of, uh, of, of shippers that, uh, that, that needs those boxes. They need uh, to be serviced in, in the way that they used to in the past. So, so for sure... We will see uh, liners getting back to uh, to the fields of uh, of North America with uh, with empties uh, for for the shippers to fill them up, but I think they will not still be in a hurry. Obviously, they uh, they they feel the pressure from the regulators, but I fear also that uh, that the American shippers. Uh, We'll get a price tag to to that uh, that box uh, in the current market that they would not necessarily love to see, because that at the end of the day is also the name of the game. If uh, if you as an American shipper need that box, you have to pay up, uh, and and it's not only, I mean, currently a uh, box from uh, from North America to Far East is is moved at around uh, one thousand five hundred or something like that, as as compared to to five hundred or seven hundred dollars in the normal market. So so there has been also uh, freight rates going up on on the backhaul, but not to the same extent as the fronthaul, and still uh, a very different level. So uh, so 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 to me. Uh, that represents a risk to handle for 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 the carriers, as they of course uh, fear that the, that the most important market for 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 them is at risk here uh, for for being say a regulatory nightmare uh, should they be forced into uh, to to not optimizing their logistics, but to uh, to to offer a, a special service to someone who's not really say an impo- important part of their customer base as they see it right now. But but that may change. 
Yeah. And are we seeing other commodities go back to dry bulk? Are we seeing agricultural sauce, the coffees, et cetera, the metals, even these, you know, very now very high value vegetable oils and so forth that are now being called on to go into biofuels? Is, you know, are they now having to go back to dry bulk because it just isn't, they just can't compete with televisions and iPads and, and so forth? There's always a, a shift from commodities into the various, uh, say, uh, modal opportunities that that you may have. We see, we see shift from uh, from ocean to air, from uh, from ocean to rail, but certainly also from uh, from dry bulk to containers. To a large extent, the agri box is a is a tiny part of containerized goods that are moved. Uh, but uh, but especially in in low markets, obviously carriers would like to have that uh, kind of commodities on. So I guess the uh, the, the squeeze on some of these uh, low value commodities is basically the fact that uh, that that carriers see them as as nice to have in low markets to reduce the cost of repositioning the empties, and they do not need them. So so I guess the the real problem for 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 shippers of uh, say low value commodities or low value goods in in any form that may also be. Uh, say waste paper or plastic stuff. Uh, I mean, they have been squeezed out of the market due to to, to the the low margins. Uh, so it's not only say low value commodities that have been shifted in and out, uh, but certainly also low margin commodities uh, that uh, that have been squeezed by the much elevated uh, rates. But again, trust me on this one. When we get into normal shipping uh, markets and and with uh, say a supply chain working the way it, it, it used to with uh, with much higher shipper reliability etc you will also see the global liner shipping companies eager to carry any kind of commodity in the market again as they seek to uh, commoditize and containerize goods that uh, that that may not uh, be uh, containerized uh, yet uh, so uh, so the pendulum Often swings back. Well, <laughs> this is a pretty bleak picture at the moment as I stared at my favorite beer yesterday in the supermarket, realizing it had gone up by $2. <laughs> so I want to end on kind of when and if we're going to get back to a normal market. And I know nothing solves high prices like high prices, but again, these are really, we're talking about large scale infrastructure projects. We're talking about dealing with labor unions, etc. I mean, these are not short-term fixes. Before we get there, I imagine data price discovery right now is in both high demand and absolutely crucial and also very hard to deliver. That's what Zanetta does. Can you just help us understand what's going on as it pertains to price discovery? Are we seeing increasing transparency? along with the trend of digitization that's going on throughout the commodities world. Absolutely. And I think transparency is the name of the game here, Paul. Sonetta have been around for 10 years now, and we are on a mission to bring more transparency into a notorious, say, intransparent logistics world. A lot of, say, individual customers are talking to, say, uh, one liner or another liner without really sharing any of that, say, valuable insights to one another. What we do at Sineta is basically we collect 
data. We crowdsource data from our customers. We cleanse it. We make sure that the quality is right. We make sure that the the, the surcharges are also put into the right boxes. And it's all anonymized and then put into 160,000 port pairs on a global scale. So what you basically bring, or at least what we seek to bring to the world is still, say, a focus on globalization, a focus on, say, getting that leverage as a small shipper or as a big shipper in terms of identifying the impact of, of market disruptions know where your market is because you must also admit that, that that some of the shippers only talk to their freight forwarder or their carrier every now and then it's not their main business they do produce say tables or furnitures or uh, say elements for for construction uh, they they even yeah, produce steel iron precious metals whatever but that's their main business they are not on top of the market for Global transportation. That's what they get at the tip of their fingers when they when when being a customer at Sanella. They they know exactly how to say understand the market position. They can benchmark against say uh, the alternatives in the market. Should I as a shipper go for a freight forwarder? Should I, if possible, go on uh, on a directly talk with uh, with my carrier? What are my options here? Should I go short? Should I go long term? Again use all that information to manage your risk because that's also uh, the name of the game uh, i mean logistics uh, i guess the logistics officer in in many companies uh, were just the guy working in the, in in the basement making sure that things uh, moved smoothly for for many many years now it is talk of every say board meeting in in many companies not only due to the money involved now but certainly also due to the disruptions i mean these are business essential goods that, that that needs to be moved i guess if if we have uh, listeners today in in the automotive industry i guess they get the chills from from talking about semiconductors and, and the lack of microchips for uh, for for the production of not only uh, evs but about any kind of uh, product that uh, that holds say uh, or at least face a shortage of product right now so uh, so so that's basically what say digitalization can do for you what smart technology can do for you and basically also what what say insight sharing can do for you and that's basically also what we uh, what we excel at at, at Sonetta. we we like to um, to share that insight with uh, with uh, with our members and with the audience today of course also here yeah and i know you've been going 10 years and uh, yeah it's a um, i imagine you're seeing a a rapid uh, increase in demand for just that kind of insight so finishing up uh, and I know that this isn't, it's not fundamental to inflation, but certainly a part of it. And, you know, inflation also has its own animal spirits, generates more inflation, right? And so seeing the headlines constantly about shipping times and disruption and so forth, or dare I say it, I won't mention the Porsches burning in the middle of the ocean. That'll make a, make a few commodity traders weep. But how is... Ultimately, this has been triggered by, if I understand it correctly, it has ultimately been triggered by COVID. There was no, you know, we might have seen an increase in prices anyway, just as a result of the cyclical nature of shipping. This is all ultimately been triggered by COVID. We're talking today, the day after Shanghai has gone back into lockdown. I know you can't uh, predict, you know, the outcome of the, the global pandemic or other disruptions. What's your best guess on 
how long this is all going to take before we get back to a more typical container market. If we start today and we will face no new obstacles in uh, the next two years, then we might before the peak season in 2023, which is the, uh, the third quarter of, of every year, we might see a new normal of global supply chains in the making. So we need a lot of, say, patience in order for things to come down and then to, say, unwind all the... Uh, all the obstacles and struggles that we have right now. So patience is needed. And then we can basically add, say, 12, 15 months on top of that. So whenever you see news like a lockdown in Shanghai, you uh, you had a lockdown of Shenzhen in uh, southern China two weeks ago. A month ago, we had uh, the uh, Chinese Lunar New Year extended by the Winter Olympic Games. There is constantly new obstacles and challenges coming in. And then, of course, Ukraine, Russia also throwing in a curveball on global logistics. So I don't know how many months you need to add every time you get a new disruption on top of the 12, 15 months that I just put in front of you. But, uh, but you, can, you can constantly expect at least another year, potentially a year and a half, because the supply chain is so clocked up everywhere around the world that it takes just so much time for that to unwind from the truckers delivering or taking the goods out of the ports into the warehouses, uh, from, from the smaller operators delivering the last mile, from, uh, from the train sets that, that needs also to, to get in and out of Chicago, for instance, and not leave the goods on the, on, on the actual out rim, outer rim of Chicago and, and, and then just adding to, to the obstacles. So as, as hazy as my crystal ball may be, I think you need to uh, take this in two steps. Build resilience into your supply chain, first and foremost. Bring, bring more stocks to your inventories bring production facilities back to your, uh, say, consumer markets if you have the money to do that. And everywhere in between, those are the options that you're left with before we get to the next one. It's been a fascinating discussion. I feel like we could go on for another two hours and talk about the future of container shipping and shipping in general as it relates to digitization and, and the energy transition and all of those long-term challenges. But I think we painted quite a, a stark picture for our for our audience about what's going on. Um, so I just want to say thank you. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can have you back on in a year and bemoan the uh, collapse in freight rates in the, in the container market. <laughs> it would be my pleasure to be back on your show, Paul. I think we covered a lot of ground here today. And I, I must say, I, I thank you and, and, and all the, the viewers around the globe uh, for spending uh, time in, in our good company. So, uh, so hopefully we made the most of it. And uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector 
and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.